It's great to see everyone this morning. It's good for us to be together. Um, We're in Daniel chapter 5. We're on a series right now that uh, I've given the title, Big Problems, Bigger God. And we certainly have a lot of big problems right now, don't we? I mean, you can't help but just look at what's going on right now. And at least for me, be a little or a lot overwhelmed. And, uh, and I have no idea how um, our nation and really the world is going to navigate the significant issues that are going on. At the same time, when we look at what's going on and we recognize the big problems is, is we can talk about the problems, but we need for our eyes always to be directed back to God. Um, because this will become unbelievably overwhelming if our eyes aren't on God. It's, it's part of the reason why Scripture says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, um, who for the joy before him went to the cross, scorning its shame. And the, the idea isn't that the cross is joyful, is, is, but the other side of the cross is resurrection. Uh, the other side of the cross is saved people. Um, the other side of the cross is eternity. And so for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so if our eyes aren't on Jesus, they're going to be on our problems, and that can be pretty depressing. So, um, so we're going to jump right in. One of the hard things about preaching on Daniel is, is the, these chapters are really long, but the stories are good, and uh, they're captivating. And so let's start reading at verse 1, and we'll just work our way through the chapter. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Wow, that's a party. Thousand nobles. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temples of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand, the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him the chief of magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 18. Your majesty, and this is Daniel speaking, so Daniel's come into the court. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all of the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. 
Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel, parsin. Here's what these words mean. Many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A golden chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. When I was reading this this morning, I realized that, you know, if you caught that, is, is, Belshazzar fulfilled his promise to Daniel. He'd be declared third in the entire kingdom and uh, would be clothed in purple. Uh, given this place of rulership, it was, the shortest, um, it was the shortest tenure ever for the third in the kingdom because that night the king was assassinated. And, uh, and we don't know that Daniel kept his place at all. It's amazing to me the number of phrases that are in the book of Daniel that have found their way into the English language. In Daniel chapter 2, there's this, this picture of feet of clay, and, it's, and Nebuchadnezzar sees this statue, and the bottom of the statue um, has feet of clay. And feet of clay is an expression that's now commonly used to refer to weakness of character, a character flaw, especially in people of prominence. He has feet of clay. Otherwise, it is he's weak. Another phrase is the handwriting on the wall. That's used when there's imminent danger or impending judgment. Man, the writing's on the wall. Weighed and found wanting. That means, man, he doesn't measure up. Um, I had noticed another one this morning that I hadn't caught before. Knees were knocking. Knees were knocking. All phrases that have found their way into the English language. Now understand the book of Daniel is about a handful of Israelites that were taken captive by the biggest, baddest empire the world had ever seen. When Babylon came to Jerusalem's door, the Babylonians didn't destroy it the first go around. Instead, they beat Jerusalem into submission and then they deported a whole wave of captives, particularly the nobles and the ruling class. Thinking that if you take the nobles and the ruling class away, then there's not really any leaders, and so they'll stay in submission. They put in power a puppet king. Interestingly, the puppet king later revolted. Wrong thing to do. And Nebuchadnezzar had the king's children killed in front of his eyes, had his eyes gouged out so it would be the last thing that he would ever see. And then he literally destroyed Jerusalem stone for stone. 
The setting of the book of Daniel isn't in Israel, it's in Babylon. And the heroes of the story are four young Israelite boys who had been pressed into the service of Nebuchadnezzar. Their story is really the story of exiled Israel, where they're in a new country, they have new customs, there's a new religion, there's new language, and there's a new culture. And they're struggling to maintain their faith in God in an environment that has little respect for them or for their God. Now, there's a sense in which is, is that we should be able to identify with these young men and with Israel, especially today when Christianity in America is becoming increasingly marginalized and trivialized and even made look foolish. Uh, this morning, um, before the first service, we, the, the worship team and the audio-video team gathered together for prayer, and um, John prayed. And, and he prayed this prayer as he said, Lord, thank you that we live in the country that we live in one of the freest countries on the planet earth. And you know, that's true in so many ways. And I don't think that our ability to worship will be taken away from us. But it does seem as though Christianity is going to be marginalized in very significant ways in coming years. It seems like that it's already happening. This is part of the reason why Daniel is so important is because it helps us to understand how to live as a minority in a majority culture. When the values of the culture are no longer the same as the values of our faith. In Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, sacri- they, they were asked to sacrifice their faith in everyday ways. So in Daniel chapter 1, they were asked to make little sacrifices, seemingly insignificant sacrifices, just some sacrifices in what they ate. And instead of making those small sacrifices, they pushed back a little and said, hey, let us do this instead. As we can even do it as a trial. If, 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 we, if we don't measure up after this short little period of time, then you can take away our ability to eat what we want to eat. And so little ways, but they know that if you sacrifice in little ways, that oftentimes it leads to sacrificing in big ways. And so in Daniel chapter 2, they were asked to sacrifice in a big way when they were asked to bow down to the idol of the culture. The Nebuchadnezzar idol that had been set up on the plain of Dura. And they refused. Daniel's really about the tension that God's people have faced for thousands of years. And the challenge is, is how do we live as God's people in a world that's going to kind of press us into its mold? How do we live in a world that's going to ask us to make sacrifices in little ways and sometimes in bigger ways? What does it look like for us to embrace differentness by living in countercultural ways? Not blending into the world's ethics and morality. Daniel helps us to ask the question How are we being asked to blend in, to go with the flow, to accept evil, to join the party? Had the church in America asked that question earlier? We may have questioned slavery sooner. 
Philip Yancey, in his book, What Good is God?, says it took the Southern Baptist Church 150 years to apologize for its avid support of slavery. He then says, what will the church be apologizing for in 150 years? And this is the part where I could possibly offend a lot of people. I wonder if in 150 years, if we'll be apologizing for our lack of respect for the sanctity of human life, young and old. There are countries in Europe right now that are actively euthanizing older people when they have, in the eyes of the culture, reached the end of their usefulness. One country in Europe last year was celebrating the fact that they'd ended Down syndrome in the country. What they didn't say is the way that they did it was by genetically testing every baby in the womb and then actively encouraging mothers to abort their children if they had any kind of perceived defect at all. I don't know if you've spent time around kids with Down syndrome, but they can be some of the most joyful, precious kids in the whole world. I've been in hospital rooms when doctors would suggest And they'd use this language that an embryo was not viable. They never said is, is, hey, we want you to get an abortion. And I would listen knowing that this mom and dad were being put into a terrible situation. In one particular situation, I just encouraged the person is, is the Lord is the Lord of the womb. And if your little baby, if your little baby is supposed to live, it will live. And the doctor had told him that if this baby is born, this baby will be born with significant defects and has no viability. That baby is now in late grade school and has no defects. Our lack of respect for the sanctity of human life might be looked down on by the church years from now. At this point, we would believe in the more conservative church that we're on the right side of things. But so did the church of early America. The church in America and much of Europe largely ignored the fact that the largest number of converts to Christianity in the first century were servants and slaves slaves and women who had no rights in the Roman world. 
They ignored the fact that Jesus called himself a servant and a slave. His disciples referred to themselves as servants of Jesus and as slaves. Yes, the meaning was slightly different, but not so much so that we should have missed it. In Philemon, Paul reminded Philemon to treat his runaway slave Onesimus well, remembering that he also had a master in heaven that he would be responsible to answer to. The church of today is quickly losing its biblical ethics. The liberal church is discarding the sanctity of human life, sexual morality, marriage is the foundation of family, and the Bible is God's true word for us. The conservative church is losing its voice because of fundamentalism without love, legalism without compassion, politicism without discernment. And that it often has the right values and ethics, but when you look under the hood, you find significant hypocrisy. What would it look like for us to repent when needed and hold the line when essential? And this is why this passage today is so helpful for us because it's a really a call back to God and his word. Timothy Keller says that there's three parts of this passage that you will see and, and you're going to see them immediately. There's the party. There's the party crasher, Daniel. And then there's the writing on the wall. When you look at the description of the party, you see that it was a Las Vegas-like party, possibly worse. You know, Las Vegas, that place um, where you can go and no one will remember what you do. What happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas, right? Right? Is that's the kind of party that's going on here. It's a wild, raucous, alcohol-filled party. There's an ample supply of wine. In the first paragraph, wine is mentioned three times. Drink, drink, and drinking are mentioned five times. It's filled with sensuality. The kings, wives, and concubines are present. You might be getting a picture of the kind of party that this was. And then the king does something that even for pagan kings was disrespectful. He ordered that the articles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem be brought into the party so that the wedding party can use them. Even for a pagan king, religious items had spiritual meaning that deserved respect. Now as Christians, we know that it's not about the golden goblets that were brought into the party. It's not even the fact that these, these articles were taken from the temple The issue here isn't for the items that came from the temple. The issue is, is that Belshazzar's arrogance and pride and absolute disrespect for holiness. The the purpose of the articles in the temple, the purity of the gold and all of that, it was simply, the article simply pointed to the holiness of God. And so in Belshazzar's pride, he, he was disrespectful of holiness. When I was preaching a few months ago through Jude, right before all of the shutdowns and everything, I mentioned that one of the early founders of America, James Madison, said that it's proper to take alarm at the first experience that we're having of liberty. And what he meant is, is at the founding of America, 
is that liberty, it is a beautiful and wonderful thing. It is so good. And we should so want liberty for everyone, regardless of race, regardless of of religion. As Christians should want to promote this as much or more than anyone. Is liberty is a beautiful thing. And so we should value it. But liberty can turn into being a libertine which the dictionary defines as a person who is morally and sexually unrestrained, a dissolute person, a prolificate, free from moral restraint. And there's a sense in which is is that we might be heading in that direction. The party in this passage is a symbol of unrestrained pleasure with no sense of morality, no care for the beauty of holiness, and no respect for God. It is a, I will do whatever I want to because I'm the master of my life. I am the captain of my ship. Which in some ways is the American way. And so there's the party. And then there's the party crasher. Daniel is called on because of a strange event. A hand mysteriously appears along with writing on the wall, which no one can read. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen. And, uh, and this is a picture of Rembrandt's painting of Belshazzar's feast. It's an interesting painting as you can see that hand there and the writing on the wall. It kind of captures Daniel chapter 5. Prior to Daniel's entrance, the king calls on the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to come in, and the wise men of Babylon, who again, as in the other passages in Daniel, they, uh, they proved to be neither wise nor helpful nor able to tell the king what was going on. Interestingly, it's the queen who appears to not be a part of the party. She hears what's going on in the party, and she comes in, finds out what's going on and says, there is one who can tell you what the writing means. I'm going to pause just for a moment and point something out. Historians and skeptics of the Bible often argue that this is where the whole story falls apart. Historical records never mentioned Belshazzar. So the Bible is obviously untrustworthy. Here's the flip side, though. When historians looked at this, they automatically assumed that Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's son. Actually, he wasn't. This is about 22 years down the road from Nebuchadnezzar. And his son followed him. And then I, I think that it was the next son followed that son, Nebuchadnezzar. But here's the thing about Belshazzar. He was a direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible often says your father's father, but that could literally mean generations. And now we know that Belshazzar existed. Because a number of years ago, a cylinder was found 
that tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar moved his throne out of Babylon because he'd gotten sideways with the priests of Moloch and that his son Belshazzar ruled in his stead. I know I, I try to follow this stuff, but at least once a year, archaeologists find things that support the Bible. But there's something that happens, and it happens all the time. People go to high school, or they go off to college, and they take a class like I took in college called The Bible is Literature. And in that class, they point out all of the inconsistencies and the historical inaccuracies of the Bible. And they point out that the Bible can't be trusted. And then young men and women, whether it's of high school age or college age, reject the Bible and completely change the direction of their life to do what they want to do. And then later, someone finds something. that says, oh, it wasn't nearly as inaccurate or unreliable as what I was once told. This actually is still happening. A lot of the books that have hit in the New York Times bestseller list in the last number of years have been uh, written by what they're calling the new atheists that are militantly against Christianity. And on a regular basis, I have individuals who come to me and say, have you read? Or there's um, a fiction book that a number of years ago, a fiction book was written that kind of talked about how Christianity is just all one made up thing by people in power and they twisted history and to do all of that. And I can't tell you how many people have been led away from the Bible by those things. Let me give you a suggestion. Unless you take the Bible first by faith and then take it as the actual word of God and trust it and submit to it, then you will find other things to give your life to. And they will be your idols. It could be things like money or recreation or a hobby or your work, or pleasure. But we all are at risk for the same thing that hindered Belshazzar. He gave his life to other things, and the ultimate result was licentiousness and immorality, and I know that that doesn't happen in every case. But there's a sense in which is, is that the root of those things and the things that we chase apart from God, the root of these things is pride. If you say, there are some things that I just can't believe about this. If you say that, then how do you know that you really believe in God? If you get to pick and choose and do what you want, 
then don't you have an idol of your own making? And it's so interesting to me is, is because not everything in here is easy to digest. I've been reading the Old Testament and I don't like some of what I read. On Monday, I was at Randy and Diane Bunton's house and, um, and just talking with Randy and we were having such a neat conversation. And I mentioned that I'd been reading through the Old Testament. And... Um, And Al, Al, Al and Kitty Rickert were there. And I, I said, is, is, man, the Old Testament's just hard. There are some things in there that are just hard to digest. And Al Rickert said this, and I love it. He said, he said, you know, in so many ways, that's proof of the reliability of the Bible. Because God didn't edit out the things that we don't like. And I thought, that's so good. Back to Daniel. Daniel enters the room and says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew about the story of your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand and wrote this inscription. The truth is, is that we have all come to, the truth is, is here's the deal, is, is Daniel's pointing out um, Belshazzar's pride. And the truth is, is we've all got to come to grips with pride. The king's problem was pride. You have not humbled yourself. Part of the reason why the Christian faith is so hard is because of pride. We don't understand faith in Jesus because we don't understand the depth of sin in our world and even in our heart. Pride says, I'm not bad. I'm a pretty good person. But the horrible, awful, hard thing about the Bible is that it says, you are that bad. You are a sinner. You can't live as good of a life as you want to. You actually don't even really know what a really good life looks like. And that's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Because in Jesus, we actually see what good looks like. We see what perfection looks like. We need Jesus because no matter how hard we try, we can't atone for our own sin. That, that whole picture there of, of the hand writing on the wall, 
You know, what's that all about? It's really the, the hand of God writing on the wall, proclaiming that his truth should never be ignored. That goodness and beauty and holiness are something that we should all strive for, that we should all want. That should we, we should all want for the word of God to call our, our lives into question. That we should want the word of God to speak to what's going on today. That we should want the word of God to help us to understand how do we respond to the issues of our day? How do we respond to the race issues? We thought we had this all discussed 50, 60 years ago. The reason there's so much anger right now is because we kind of keep sweeping it under the rug. We keep hoping that people just stop talking about it. If you don't think it's an issue, then I would argue with you, it wasn't that many years ago that I quoted Abraham Lincoln in a sermon and someone came up and confronted me for quoting a traitor. As a pastor, when I'm writing sermons, I often find myself saying, I wonder how many people this will offend. And because I'm a coward, I often dance around issues. And that's why it's so important that we spend time in the word of God because the word of God forces us to ask the question, is this is this right? Is this good? Is this holy? Am I ignoring things that God would have me not ignore? Am I treating him as holy and good? Am I, treating, crea- am I treating his creation with appropriate respect? Am I treating everyone as an image of God made person? We so need God's word. We need that handwriting on the wall. But praise be to God because the writing on the wall is different for us than it was for Belshazzar or it can be different. We need Jesus. And the great thing about Jesus is is that there's a different kind of writing that's possible. The beautiful thing about the gospel, the good news, is that yes, it tells us about our sin. But it also tells us about the one who stepped out of life to give his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many. Jesus told the religious leaders, is I didn't come to heal those who think they are well. That's called pride. 
I came to heal those who know that they are not. I came to heal the sick, to set the captive free, to conquer sin and death, to proclaim freedom for the, for the prisoner, to conquer death and to kick Satan's... Yeah, to kick Satan to the curb. But Jesus didn't come with an army to overthrow. Instead, he embraced weakness. He surrendered himself to his own creation. He showed us what a good life looks like. But then he willingly submitted himself to torture and death on a cross. But here's the beautiful thing, is that the cross wasn't the end of the story. In fact, the cross was good, not because it was good, but because of what it achieved. It paid for our sins. And the resurrection is the better story. In Luke chapter 10, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sends out his disciples to do ministry. And they find this amazing thing when they go into the towns and, and they start ministering to people. And, and there's demonic activity going on. And, and so they, they cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And they come back to Jesus and they're all excited and they're celebrating. And they say is, is, hey, it's amazing. Even the demons listen to us. And Jesus in Luke 10, 20 says, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's our writing on the wall. It's your writing on the wall. Is God, God invites us to come to him, to turn away from sin. And, and yes, this is going to be a struggle while we're here is, is, but to turn away from sin and to follow Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, then Jesus' story becomes our story and his story is heaven. And it's yours because heaven came down in the person of Jesus so that we could go up. And it's the better story, and it's our story through Jesus Christ. And we're invited into it. We're invited into it. John, I'm going to invite your team to come if you've got enough of a team to do the last song. So there's, there's a song. It's called Jesus is the Center. And, uh, yep, it looks like most everyone is still here. I want to, we, we didn't do it in the first service. We ran out of time or we're technically out of time, but you love it when I go over time. So I want to invite you um, to sing this morning. And Jesus is the center, but is he the center of your life? Is he the leader of your life? Is he your savior? The handwriting on the wall apart from God is just brokenness. But the handwriting on the wall with Jesus is your name written in heaven. 
And um, you can sing along or you can just pray. But it's a great opportunity to say, hey, Jesus, would you come into the brokenness of our world again? And the interesting thing is, is that Jesus came once and he died on the cross and he went back to be with the Father. The way that he comes today is through brothers and sisters in Christ that have his spirit in their hearts going into a broken world. Jesus is still coming every day through his sons and daughters that take his light into the broken world. But we've got to keep Jesus at the center. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy went before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the end, it will always be and it's always been you, Jesus. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the always been you, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, nothing else matters. Nothing this world will do. Jesus, you're the
At the center of it all 